0: Huh? Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Verziel, and my guest today is Andrew Stallings. He's the founder of Othello Group. Formerly, he had some time with SiriusXM. He also was hanging out at Octagon for a little while, as well as a couple other places. So, Andrew is awesome. He has gone through some evolutions in his life. He is very honest with himself and what he's done and how he's done it. And he has absolutely come out the other side, and you'll understand that after you listen to the episode. But thank you so much to Andrew for coming on, and thank you to you for listening to this episode with Andrew Stallings. Yes! All right. Today, I'm For the Love of Sports, I have my friend Andrew Stallings, the founder of Othello Group, formerly with SiriusXM and Octagon. Andrew, how you doing today, buddy?
1: What's going on, brother? It's great to connect again. It's been quite some time. I uh, hope you're doing great. Thanks again yeah. for having me
0: on. The last time I saw you was the last time I was in New York City when we were at the uh, shout out to our friends at Front Office Sports. They had that little get together and it was, all, it was that time where we were just like, oh, we won't shake hands. And then everyone's like, ah, oh, screw it. We're fine. And here we are. We've been stuck inside for the last two months. How
1: crazy is that? I know, I know. Those guys always do such a great job of bringing the community together, um, especially the community of young business professionals in sports. Um, I think almost any opportunity I see that they put one of those mixers on, uh, I try to move things around on my schedule um, just to to go there and, and get an opportunity to really have some good conversations with new people. Because it's one of the few networking mixers, you could say, that's not you know, very heavy on the networking mm-hmm. or sale or pitch. Um, it really is a bunch of genuine people trying to understand, you know, what, you know, what you're doing for different facets of the world of sports. So, you know, again, kudos to them. Uh, they, they, they do a great job with it for sure.
0: Yeah, they're, they're awesome. Uh, Both Adam and Russ. uh, I'll call them good friends of mine. Maybe they won't call me a good friend, but I'll, I'll I'll take it in my, my court. I had Adam on the show a while, while back. He's one of the first episodes I ever did. So he's an awesome dude. Russ obviously is really cool. Love what they're doing at FOS and they've been killing it even with everything kind of turned off. Uh, They're, they're still pumping out stuff and I still enjoy that newsletter every morning. So they're, they're doing a lot of stuff, but yeah, I thought it was funny. That's the last time we got to see each other. And I mean, we've spoken on the phone a couple of times as well. I know you're still rocking and rolling, doing some stuff and it looks like we're starting to get out of this mess a little bit, so we'll see where it goes. But the actual first question I have for you, Andrew, and and for everybody on you know, For the Love of Sports, is why do you love sports so
1: much? You know, it's my my path with sports is uh, a little different, uh, but probably not. I, I think a lot of people can probably relate to a relationship or a moment in time where they were introduced to sports through. Uh, you know, whether it was a family member or a close friend or a key pivotal moment. I think if you ask most people, they'll say, oh, you know, it was the Super Bowl. I was watching it with my dad when I was a kid. Um, and it was somewhat similar for me. Uh, I lived my whole life down in Tidewater, Virginia. Uh, for those not familiar, that's the southeast part of Virginia, um, Newport News specifically, um, hometown of Uh And my whole life, I was there, like my family and everything. And, you know, everything was so structured in the way that I had it, the comfort. Um And when I was 10 years old, uh, my dad up and rooted us to Roanoke, Virginia, which was on the complete opposite side of the state. Um, Their learning curve, uh, you know, I was just learning, I think, to write cursive, like, you know, write like a letter or what have you. They were writing paragraphs in cursive when I went to the school that I went to over there. So I was a step behind academically. I was a step behind. It felt like socially uh, it was a different culture, Uh, you know, great people. But for me, I was an outcast. And, you know, that was the first time in my life that that had ever happened to me. My dad had been banking for 42 years. He was like the mayor of our town, mostly like he could walk into a gas station. Everybody knew him. So when we moved to Roanoke, I didn't have any friends. I was getting bullied, uh, beat up, pushed around. And, you know, my mom, you know, God rest her soul was like she had just gotten diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So she was dealing with her own things. My dad was working crazy hours. But my dad, you know, loved him to death for this. There was an ECHL minor league hockey team called the Roanoke Express. And if you know anything about hockey and even minor league sports in general, it's almost like the lower you go, the more of an entertainment act mm-hmm. it is yep. to sell tickets. So the ECHL is basically double A uh, of hockey. And these guys fought. Like if you go to these games, they would brawl. They would beat up. It was a circus act. My dad, the first week we moved to Roanoke, got season tickets for the Roanoke Express. And we went to every single game and drove down there. Um, We lived on top of this mountain. Like if anyone's familiar with with that part of uh, Roanoke. We lived up in um, 45 minutes away from the arena, and you had to go all the way down to downtown Roanoke to get to the Civic Center. So we had a 45-minute car ride. My dad had an old-school, beat-up Mercedes-Benz with diesel engine in it, and we had one CD in that car, and it was Reba McIntyre, believe it or not. And every single game, we would blast fancy by Reba McIntyre to go see an ECHL hockey game in Bro out and bond. And that was our thing. I ended up um, getting close with the players um, when they would do injury reserves. They would invite me to come do private practices with them and skate on the ice with them, you know, I'm 10, 11 years old. And mm-hmm. to me, these people are larger than life. You know, they're professional athletes. I got to go to the locker rooms after games. The cheerleaders used to think I was the cutest little chubby thing in the world uh-huh. and like throw me pucks and t shirts all the time. Like to me, it was home. And that's where I built not only just my passion and affinity for sports um, to another level, but also for the game of hockey. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my whole life, you know, living in Virginia for the most part, at least through my adolescence, you know, because we were only in Roanoke for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And then we went back to Newport News uh, where my dad, you know, switched jobs again to another bank. And I was there till, you know, I went to college. And my whole thing was I took that passion for hockey with me. And in Newport News, Virginia Beach area, no one like they had a minor league hockey team over in Norfolk, but no one knew hockey, no one played mm-hmm. hockey. So for me, I was again coming back into a world as an outcast, like a beach town beach bum, you know, kind of guy. And I loved hockey. I I was obsessed. I picked the Philadelphia Flyers as my team. Eric oh. Lindros was my boys. I know, I know, I'm a yeah, guy hear that fan. dude, yeah. Capitals fan now, you know, again, I've definitely learned my lesson, but, uh, you know, growing up, it just, it stuck with me. And I think those moments, when you look at it now, like I said, you know, my mom, unfortunately, is no longer with me. And, you know, you look at those moments and it's like, you look back and it's like, I shared this connection of sports with my dad. And it's, it's deeper rooted and deeper invested in anything I do. So when I work every single day, when I look at things through a lens of a fan, I look through it almost through a more passionate lens because there is a lot of emotion drawn and tied into everything that I went through personally. So there are a lot of other people that have similar situations like that. Some people just like the entertainment factor and sharing a beer with their parents or their friend. And, you know, that's what sports in a lot of ways from a viewership standpoint is about um, is, you know, the entertainment and the, the competition and those moments. Um, so I think I I'm lucky enough to see it through a, a very unique lens and not just be like, Oh, the fan experience is based on this data, these viewership. And you know, it's, it's really black and white. It, it's, how do you sell the experience? How do you sell the emotion to it and do it from somebody that is on the bench playing the game to sitting in the fans, uh, sitting in the stands rather, and you know, row double M in the rafters all the way to sitting on their couch at home. And that's how you have to shape the experience. So I've always looked at it through uh, a pretty unique lens because of those moments for me.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a short, you know, as you said, it was a year and a half. So it was 18 months, uh, whatever it ends up being. And it's just the the way, you know, I, again, first, let me say, thank you for sharing that story. That's exactly why I do this, because I love hearing stuff like that. And, you know, just the kind of, you know, it's a quick 18 month tour, you know, when you, you put it in the grand scheme of things, but as one of the most impactful 18 months of your entire life. And it literally puts you on this path, as you said, to start loving hockey, which you would never have done if you stayed, you know, at, in that beach town in, in Virginia instead of going to Roanoke. It would have, you know, never given you those opportunities to listen to Reba McIntyre with your dad, you know? And, you know, just those fun little things like that, that, again, you know, you, you're easily recalling it here however many years later, almost 20 years later, whatever that number is. And it allows you to really hone in on what's important to you but really give you the understanding of what's important to the fan. How do they get the best experience out of it? And, and you're right, you know, those are analytics and sometimes it's good to have. That's good numbers. It doesn't hurt the situation, but really looking at it from how do we give the people the best possible experience through the lens of a fan, not through the lens of a corporate partner, not through the lens of some guy in a suit in a, a you know, in a suite that he didn't pay for, that he's getting all this beer and chicken wings. Like you didn't pay for any of that. So you don't know what it's like to spend nine fifty on a beer. And have that beer with your dad, with your mom, as you said. So I think that that part is very important. And how how did you take advantage of that? I mean, we're going to get into what you've done and how you've done it. But when you did go back to Roanoke, when you did end up going to college, like how how much did you see that eighteen months in you, you know, moving forward?
1: I it was everything. Uh, you know, I I think again I. I was always a Washington, D.C. sports fan. You know, again, when you live in Southeast Virginia, you you kind of just adopt D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, so Redskins fan. Um, I was an Atlanta Braves fan, still am growing up. But I think for me, it was because of the TBS, you know, yeah. affiliation. Yeah. Um, yeah, they were on TV every day. So my brothers and I are, are Braves fans for that. Um, Capitals, again, you know, they were just – kind of like they were on that okay verge where they had the one Stanley Cup run late in the mm-hmm. 90s um, but they weren't that exciting um so i mean dc was was my my area my team so i always honed in and targeted on dc as this sports mecca of a town, even though, albeit, you know, the Redskins did those Super Bowl wins in the 90s, which were great. But now, in a lot of ways, it's been a hard road to the top, except for the past two or three years with the Nationals and Capitals, you know, winning those championships. Um, but I think coming from Roanoke back to um, Southeast Virginia, uh, you know, I knew I loved hockey, right? And I knew I loved sports. And when I started looking at sports, I looked at what is the closest to me, and that was DC. Um, my mom's side of the family is all from Northern Virginia and right outside of the Beltway, different surrounding parts. Uh, and my brother, who is 10 years older than me, um, next closest in age to me by 10 years, um, he went to George Mason University. Um, and I was, you know, he's my big brother. I was like, oh my gosh, I wanna follow him. I wanna you know, go to George Mason, like, okay, done, DC it is. And the way that I always kind of planned it out of my head from like middle school on was if I go to DC, there's so many sports teams there, the, the capitals are there, they're not that good. So maybe I can get a job with them and, you know, I could be surrounded by all these different, you know, sports teams. It's perfect. Family's there. It'll be a second home. Boom. And honestly, I had that, it, probably that plan in my head from like seventh or eighth grade on, you know, I really was like, DC is it for me. And When I went into high school, I remember my guidance counselor meeting with me for the first time and she was like, Andrew, great to meet you. So what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to work for a major sports team. That's great. That's cute. So what do you want to do with a major sports team? And I think a lot of people in the industry kind of come to this roadblock at certain points of the sports career. You want to work in sports. You want to have all the glitz and glamour and the VIP passes and tickets. But a lot of people think it's just you work for a team. Like they don't know the operations, the different roles, the different jobs you can do. So for me, I started really honing in and studying like what are the different jobs? There's marketing, there's business operations, there's arenas. Like, you know, there's what can I really focus on? And I went into my senior year, had like a 2.3 GPA, had a 9.10 on my SATs. But I was the most social, well connected, and athletic guy. I mean, it was kind of a typical jock story, Mm -hmm. right? You know, I I wasn't, you know, the best top tier athlete in the world, but, you know, I was, I played every sport I could, I was active, what have you. And I applied to 13 colleges and I got rejected from all 13 colleges. And these were not like, you know, D1 schools, Mm -hmm. I'm talking D2, D3 in the middle of like bumble nowhere. And I couldn't get in. And my folks were like totally set on the fact, okay, you're going to do community college, this and that. The last school to reject me, um, I'll take a step back. George Mason, that year I was applying, was their final four run. So oh, geez. That, yep. Yeah. that definitely Everybody applied happen. that year. Yep. Exactly. So that wasn't going to happen. Um, but the last school that rejected me was this small um, university in Arlington, Virginia called Marymount University. Uh, predominantly a fashion design school um, used to be an all-female college uh, back in, I think the seventies, sixties, fifties. So, you know, very high tuition because it was a private school D three. Um, but they rejected me. And I just remember seeing that rejection letter. And I'm like, Arlington is like the pinnacle. If, if you know, DC, it is the pinnacle of like, it's around everything. As far mm-hmm. as the Northern Virginia beltway, you want to be in Arlington. So, I, re- I came home that day with the rejection letter and my dad and mom were sitting there. They're totally ready to like, Hey, it's okay. Like we're going to put a plane together. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, let me just write this letter real quick. And like, give me, give me a few days. And they're looking at me like I have 12 heads. I went upstairs and I wrote a handwritten letter to the Dean of admissions at Marymount University. And I pleaded my case. I said, You can conditionally accept me. I will hit this grade point average. I will do this. I will do this. I don't remember the exact specifics of it all, but I laid it all out. And sure enough, I get a phone call four or five days later that they accepted me. And from then on, I was at Marymount and graduated in four years, made Dean's List a few times. It was... You know, kind of one of those things where perseverance overcame me, and I just said, "No, this is going to be it." Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of always been the way that I've looked at my career and everything that I've done. Is I've been put down, told no, said that I'm the worst so many times. I've had so many bosses that, for better or worse, have proven to me and shown me a lot um, just by the way that they criticize me. And I have great, I have thick skin, you know, at this point in my career because of it, but. You know, everyone ever since that moment, I've just been told, no, you can't do this. There's no way you're going to get into this school. You're, you're not going to do it. No way, no way, no way. There's no way you're going to be able to start a sports agency. You're not an agent. You're not a lawyer. Here I am. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of the way it is. It's never going to be perfect. And I'm not aiming to be, you know, the CAAs or the Wassermans or Octagons of the world. But if you can find something that you can do on your terms that defines success, makes you happy, makes you, you know, makes sense as far as the business model goes, and it has room to grow. I mean, the sky's the limit. So anytime that people would tell me no, I usually found a way to do it if I was passionate enough. Now, there Mm -hmm. were times where I was told no, and I was like, okay, cool. Let me go have a beer. Like, that's fine.
0: And that happens too, right? Like, you gotta, you have to understand, you know, that you're not going to win every single battle. That's, that's kind of, you know, silly to think it that way. But you found, you know, I love the, the, the way you went about the letter and understanding. It's like, no, I, I need to be in Arlington. So let me plead my case. And that sounds like one of your first sales if uh, you didn't have something else uh, during high school to do that with. But it sounds like, you know, that is, a, again, another kind of pivotal moment within your career that allowed you to set up to get to where you were going and what you were doing. And I've, you know, I'm, I, weirdly enough, I actually am on Serious Radio on Saturdays and Sundays sometimes. And so we've met some of the the producers there and many of them come from the DMV area. You know, they went to Maryland, they did all that. So it's it's interesting kind of how this lines up to get you, that job with Sirius. So as you said, you wanted to work for a professional sports team and you actually understood. And that's another point you brought up that I think was great. So many people want a job in sports. Sports is an industry. You can be an accountant. You can be a financial advisor. You can be on a radio show. Like there's so many different things to do in sports. So understanding that, you know, do whatever you want to do. You can just put it through a sports lens and you can probably do that in sports. Just understand, you're probably going to get paid less. The demand and the supply are going to be significantly higher and you're not going to be able to enjoy the sports you watch before you're going to have to work during them. So that's always something that a few people forget, but I think that that part's pretty important. So with that, like what was the opportunity to start with Sirius? I know you were there for a few years. You had an internship as well. Why that route was there no offerings from the capitals or the Redskins, or was it over the four years of college? You're like, yeah, you know what, rather than working for a team, I kind of want to work just in the industry in another space.
1: Yeah. So when I came up to Arlington, um, it's worth noting that there was this Russian guy um, that came into the NHL for his rookie season, mm-hmm. and he started playing for this team called the Capitals, named Alexander Ovechkin. I've heard of him. And, yep. yep. So he kind of shifted the landscape for hockey mm-hmm. a little bit in uh, the nation's capital. You know, over those first few years. Um, so the the Capitals with the rebrand and everything that they went through at the time. It slowly just became more and more out of reach, um, as the years went on. I, I did interview with monumental a few times for a few positions, but the one thing I have learned, and I think a lot of people can relate to this is they say, never work at your favorite restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. Because in a lot of ways you use Pat, like you lose that passion and taste for the food, the environment, the culture. I was doing like freelance writing at some point for some like Canadian blogs, um, probably my sophomore, junior year of of college. Mm -hmm. And I was watching these Caps games and I was having to track the plus minus, the stats, the analytics of it. And I I lost passion for it. I started losing passion for the number one game of my life. And I was like, I can't work. I can't work Mm -hmm. in hockey. Like there's no way. Um, So Capitals kind of fell off pretty quickly when I looked at it through that lens. Um, I, I did a whole bunch of oddball jobs throughout college. Um, I think most notoriously is that I used to work at the melting pot, um, as a fondue server it. for like eight years. I started as like a bus boy down in Newport News during high school, transferred up to the Arlington and DC locations. And like, that was my home. And that was like a second family that, that, that whole organization, you know, it's everyone, if you've worked in a restaurant, I mm-hmm. think a lot of people realize like it's kind of a family in a lot of ways, um, man, I just the, the memories I have from there that, that kept, kept my head on straight are just ugh, I could go on. That's a whole separate podcast. Um, but I was going through working there. I was coaching women's high school basketball at the top academic high school in the nation at Thomas Jefferson High School. Um, so I, I was doing like a whole bunch of just oddball jobs. And it came down to my senior year. And I had to get at Marymount, you know, you had to have an internship to graduate. So I had applied everywhere and the Redskins, like, you know, part-time jobs, uh, at local newspapers, like anything to do with sports and communications like that, I was trying to do that. And, you know, to your point, I was talking to companies where I was just trying to, look at a communications role through the lens of sports and entertainment, even though like they'd be a nonprofit or, you know, they would be like a a charity, you know, whatever. I mean, I tried to spin it any way I could and I just, I never could. So it got to be, I think, 48 hours before the deadline where I literally, if I didn't have an internship, I would not have been able to graduate like in the spring. So it was like the first week of December going into my senior year, I didn't have an internship, rejection, 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 sitting in my dorm, hands in my head, and I'm literally losing my mind. I'm like, I've done so good, and I literally am not gonna be able to graduate because of an internship opportunity. I had applied to SiriusXM through their internship program just but like it, I was mass applying, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like somebody that sees the easy apply button on LinkedIn and they just always click it because it's the easiest thing. You know, that was me back in the day. I was just numbers, volume, anything. Please give me a phone call. And so I didn't even remember really applying to it. Um, but I'm sitting there. I do recall this moment. I'm sitting there, hands in my head, snowstorm in DC, and I'm sitting in my dorm and my phone rings. And I look at it and it's like a random number. And even back then, we're screening calls, ignore, ignore. Person called back a third time, I pick it up. And it's this guy named Ross Rosian. And he was in charge of the internship program at SiriusXM. Somebody, I guess, had dropped out at the 11th hour. They were just finalizing their internship program. And he saw my resume, said, hey, do you have time for a conversation and an interview sometime this week? And I was like, and I almost started crying. I just, even the fact that I was getting the interview, I was like, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, yes, sure. Whatever, whatever you want. And sure enough, I got the internship at SiriusXM at the 11th hour par for the course with my life. It seemed mm-hmm. like, um, and Ross took a gamble on me. Um, Ross and I still have a great relationship. Um, he's living down in Austin, Texas, uh, running his own marketing agency now called Tricycle Creative. And he and I, you know, we spoke a few weeks ago about um, all of this. And it's so funny because you look at like those opportunities that just come at the last second. And I said, you know, look, Sirius XM, big name. Like at, at the time for me, it was a matter of getting an internship. It was a matter of getting the opportunity and, and just going. I didn't mm. care. Like it yeah. could have been Burger King offering me a part-time job as an internship. I would have done it. Um, but I went into Sirius XM and it was incredible to see the media side from a whole different lens. And it's a struggle. I mean, you know this, it's a struggle and a grind when you see these people like they're, they're not getting paid a lot in media, but every single person that's working there, you kind of can compare them to, you know, teachers in a lot of ways, like they're living out their passion and they're not getting a lot of money for it. So they're challenged to put on the most creative and entertaining shows and book the biggest guests and, you know, build the biggest networks to do all this with little to nothing. But the people I met at Sirius XM were just absolutely incredible. I absorbed every little bit of information there. Um, and I did everything I could to be a part timer um, coming out of my internship. And I was able to be an overnight uh, board operator. So I would be in charge of, if you listen to a game on Sirius XM, it's a live game. There's usually somebody sitting in a small, five by five soundproof booth in either DC or New York that as the shows go or as the games go to commercial break, they're pressing a button and they're lowering levels and pushing it back up as they come back. Like that was my job. And I did that for five or six months before um, I was able to get an associate producer role as a board operator with Fantasy Sports Channel. So I, I slowly moved around, did a few things with Sirius XM um, before landing on the NASCAR channel. And when I went over to NASCAR, it was it was a whole new world. I mean, I Southeast Virginia is big in NASCAR. I hated NASCAR. I thought it was the worst sport in the world. I was quintessentially the guy sitting there listening to mm-hmm. truck drivers call in, screaming three for Dale, this and that. And I was just like literally rolling my eyes, middle finger to the board. I hated it. I was just like, this is not a sport. Are you kidding me? And I learned so much. I just, the way that NASCAR has evolved from a digital standpoint, um, from the way that they've tried to hone in on a new, younger consumer audience versus like the very old school fan, I learned a ton. So that that was kind of my bridge into Sirius XM. Um, you know, I jumped around before hitting on that full time role. And, um, you know, I kind of had my, my rock star moment at that point. Like I graduated, mm-hmm. you know, made the part time role still working bartending, doing all this stuff and came in and started doing everything from a full-time perspective as a, as a producer on the number one rated morning show um, for NASCAR called the morning drive. And it took me years to really accept this fact, but the immaturity that I had back then as like a 22, 23 year old producer for this big shot show, I, I would say I was good at my job. I wouldn't say I was fantastic at my job. Like I booked some pretty big guests, which Mm -hmm. were definitely hard to get. I was somewhat creative, you know, in other areas where other people couldn't be. Um, But I had the biggest ego in the world. And I just felt like all I had to do was I had to be in studio at 4am, do the show from 7 to 11am, do an hour of post-production. I was home by one o'clock every day, could go home, sleep for an hour or go to the gym. And then I would go bartend, And I would drink my face off every single night and stumble back into the studio the next morning. I was quintessentially just hitting rock bottom in my early 20s quicker than I ever could. I thought Mm -hmm. I was invincible. And I burned a ton of bridges because of that. Um, I, you know, my host at the time, like we butt heads tremendously. I I think my other co host kind of saw into the moment, like, look, Mm -hmm. I get it. I see, you know, you're a young kid, you're going through a lot, what have you. But there were just so many bridges I burned during those days. And I look back at that time at Sirius XM as one where it was very humbling. And I just, I could have done so much better. It's probably one of the few moments in my life where I, I put in a lot of effort. I put in a lot of work and it was, it was a learning experience. But I also if I had just had the truth serum or had I just had a mentor at that mm-hmm. time that was like, dude, get it together. Like just like smacked me around a little bit. I could have probably really made a bigger career out of it on the media side than, you know, I was able to, you know, do while mm-hmm. I was there. So, you know, the, the stories that I could pull out at Sirius could go for days, um, mm-hmm. but it was, it was a very, very humbling time. Um, Michael Masvinsky, Daniel Norwood were my bosses over there. They were absolutely incredible, patient, hard asses. Um, everything they needed to do, they wanted to be the best, and you know they they held their team accountable to be the best in a lot of ways. So, you know, it was uh, it was an eye opening experience that set me up for uh, for a good transition mm-hmm. to uh, the agency side over to Yeah, October.
0: yeah, and I think it's it's really interesting. There's been a few pull. Po- points in this story you know as um as we've been talking so um uh, you apply to jmu oh well, that's just the year they go to the final four so everyone else is applying you're looking to get a job with the capitals oh you know that's just the time where alexander ovechkin comes in oh you're starting to do pretty well at uh Sirius. well, well you're kind of a 22 year old asshole at that point still so it's just interesting how along the way like we're very happy where you ended up because you're doing some really cool stuff now but it's, it's just interesting kind of how you were guided down that path, if I, if I may, or like how you got down there and some of the things you could have been doing differently. But again, it, we're, we're happy you got to where you got to. It's just an interesting way you got there. It's kind of, uh, you know, a little, a little different. And then, and so, you know, obviously working at Sirius XM for a few years, as you said, you were kind of 20, whatever years old and doing 20, whatever year old things. So it is what it is. But as you said, it then led you into the agency business. So while being on this hotshot show, while being able to, to work and make some money along the way and, you know, do what you need to do, how, what was that transition like into the agency world? One, I mean, getting a job with Octagon is incredible. I mean, well-known I've had people from the show, uh, from Octagon on the show. I mean, they're one of the biggest agencies on planet earth, if not, perceptions reality they make it seem like that um so so how did you move into the agency space and start working on the brands and sponsorship side when you know you had very little or or limited um work experience there
1: already yeah so i think i mean you're you're 100 right Uh, octagon is the mecca and i still look at it until a lot of people to this day like they are top dog at what they do and, and a lot of the relationships in my professional career, um, you know, are from the team over at Octagon. They're, they're just, they're an incredible organization, top to bottom. I really think that they do care um, as, as it's very difficult to do that uh, when it comes down to budgets and and those kind of opportunities, they do their best to look out for their team. At least they did for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you, when you take a step back to kind of look at how things were well, how we were putting a bow on things at Sirius XM. Um, I had been fighting with my bosses. Um, I was literally coming into the studio and I was just, just hung over. Like it, it was, it was bad. And luckily for me, um, I didn't have to like my, like no one was really in studio when I was coming in at 4am. So it wasn't like I was walking mm-hmm. the halls and, you know, seeing yeah. everyone. I would literally come in from the parking lot, go to my studio literally put my hoodie on and just be like, uh, like just done. And, you know, I had gotten switched to the afternoon show, um, which was with Dave Moody, um, on Sirius XM speedway. And in a lot of ways, Moody had this perception about him, um, from some of his peers and colleagues that he was very, very good at what he did from a journalistic standpoint, but he was very like, he wanted facts. He wanted breaking news. And he wanted the best show from a news standpoint and from a mm-hmm. discussion standpoint that NASCAR could offer. As for the morning show, it was more entertainment, creativity, yeah. fun, buzz. And if we could get breaking news stories like sprinkled in, boom, perfect. Um, but there was an opportunity for me to get off the morning show and go to Moody. And a lot of people were like, dude, good luck. Like you're going to get chewed up, spit out. I was with Dave Moody for six months and it was the best six months I probably had in at XM. He mm-hmm. and I... Like he, again, he had the option to have me as a producer and he knew he heard the good, bad and ugly about me, that I was this stick in the mud guy, you know, kind of wanted to do things my way, had an ego. And from the onset, he told me, he was just like, I don't, he basically told me, he's like, I don't give a shit. You have, he's like, if you help me run the best show, then we're going to be just fine. And I said, done. And I think, within the first few weeks, like we were booking just some of the big names that he wanted because I had the connections with the PR people and we both were riding high. Like everything seemed to be kind of getting better and it was, it was great. Um, but as that happened, you know, I was, I'm was still partying. It's just that my schedule had switched now. So mm-hmm. instead of going in the mornings, my show is now from three to 7 PM. So I wasn't bartending as much, <clears throat> but I would be going out even later and then just sleeping for an hour and going in in the afternoons. And it, it was still very tumultuous. Um, my girlfriend at the time, I, you know, we, it was just an immature relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mom, unfortunately, uh, had just passed away, like suddenly. And I had hit this just black hole, like 25, probably one of the worst years of my life. And I just hit this black hole with everything I was in a relationship I didn't want to be in. Work was like just sucking. I was working multiple jobs to make ends meet. Everything sucked, and I sat there and I was like, I can't be at SiriusXM forever. I can't. Like I, I, hit my glass ceiling in a lot of ways. I was a producer, and you know, I was making just enough to get by, and I, I was just like, I can't do this. What am I gonna do? Uh, and then I sat, I sat down one day, and I said, I've always been fascinated by the business side of of sports like the sponsorship side the operations the business model um and i had a lot of great relationships because working in media a lot of these agency people would reach out to us for um radio ads um guest hits you know like danica patrick wants to come on and promote valvoline kind of thing Blah blah blah, Mm -hmm. blah. um so i built those relationships with like the caas the octagons and wassermans and stuff because they were overseeing like the Sprint business, the Sunoco Racing business, like they oversaw those from a brand operation mm-hmm. and sponsorship perspective. So when I hit that crossroads, um, I remember I was supposed to move in with my girlfriend. I was supposed like I had all these things in the works, and I had sent out a few emails and I reached out to people at Octagon, to CAA, and I think UTA U- United uh, United Talent Agency. Um, I think that was it. And I, I was just like looking for opportunities, like anything. It didn't have to be a NASCAR, anything. And all of them were like, Hey, great, great to hear from you. This sounds cool. You're a good guy. Why don't you move to Charlotte and we'll get you set up on one of our teams down there. And I, myself was like, I was from Southeast Virginia. I didn't want to go any more South at that point in my career. I was up in DC. I kind of wanted to go a little bit more North, like maybe Philly, but not all the way to New York. I, to this day we'll get into this i hated new york city and i was like never in a million years i hate new york no 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 so octagon calls me and they're like hey stallings we know the opportunity to get you to charlotte didn't work for the sunoco and sprint accounts but uh we had this roll up in norwalk connecticut and i'm like oh connecticut that's like up near maine right and it's just crickets on the other line they're like what like dude have you ever traveled? And I was like, uh, not really. I mean, you know, been to California once or twice. So they were like, look, it's a new protein bar company that we brought on. Um, We need somebody to help run mobile tours. We will groom you. We will teach you about sponsorship. We're going to bring you on as a senior account executive. So you'll be able to to kind of learn to manage certain people. You'll have four people underneath you. And they took such a flying risk on me that they were just like, look, you've never worked marketing. You've never worked agency but you know, communications, you know, sports like, all right, let's see how we do this. And I just left everything. I left my girlfriend. I left my family. I left my job at SiriusXM and I moved to Connecticut and I had never met anybody in Connecticut, never been up there. And it was the, one of the biggest risks I took in my life. And it was incredible at the same time, uh, moved up there. Uh, was working on Nature's Bounty, which was pure protein uh, and metrics. And I oversaw their sponsorship programs for uh, their 10K, 5K series and their relationship with uh, Tough Mudder. So my job mostly was to travel the country every single week and go to different Tough Mudder events, running events, and make sure that we had brand ambassadors handing out protein Mm -hmm. bars, make sure everything was refrigerated. It was operations. And that was the best year (laughs) I think I had in my life. Um, in a lot of ways because I got to travel the world for free and US for free. And I got to just go do whatever I want. Like I do these events. Like that was my job. I answer some emails, but could go party in Seattle. I could go party in Oregon. I could go party. I was just, it was adding kind of gasoline onto the embers that I was coming out of DC with. Mm -hmm. But Ultimately, I learned so much and I started growing and maturing and realizing, okay, my body can't keep up with doing this every single week. So, you know, got to, you know, figure that out. Um, so I was on that account for, man, about a year, a year and a half or so. Um, and then in, in most agency jobs, you, you kind of hop around a little bit. You have to. Um, Sports Illustrated became a new client of ours. Um, I took an opportunity to be this kind of creative account manager, um, working Mm -hmm. with the new business development and uh, editorial team over at time. And uh, I helped the swimsuit platform and then also the sports person of the year and sports kid of the year platform from an experiential marketing standpoint. Um, So that was like building out all the events, like these different things. Uh, And then from there, I moved over to Anheuser-Busch within Octagon. And Mm -hmm. I was... A uh, account manager helping out on the relationship between FIFA World Cup and Budweiser. And I was managing the day to day between Corona and the World Surf League, and then Corona's relationship with their sustainability partner, Parlay for the Oceans. Hmm. So I automatically went from just like within probably the span of three years, you know, being stuck in a cubicle, you know, in a studio with fluorescent lights, like having this great job to, Then I was traveling all over the U S and now I was like, Hey, Stalin, you have to be in Russia tomorrow? And I was like, Oh, okay. So from Russia, by the way, you're going to go to, you know, down to the Maldives and you're going to be on a boat with Chris Hemsworth and MIA for three weeks. And that's like, okay, sure. So uh, Yeah. I mean, Octagon gave me all these incredible chances and projects to work on. Um, But the one thing I'll say is, you know, I had, I had some bosses there that, some were absolutely fantastic. Some, I will not say were not fantastic. They just, they taught me a lot and they taught mm-hmm. me a lot about what I could have done better about what people can do better in certain team situations. And to this day, I'm, I'm thankful for it. I, I look back when I get so many messages from people, obviously when you carry a name like Octagon on your LinkedIn, people reach out like, Hey, can I use you as a reference? Can I ask you questions? And, um, I always, to this day say, um, just Octagon is is one of the most top tier organizations. You know the the people there, top to bottom. You know I'm sure a lot of a lot of people may not say the same thing about me, but mm-hmm. I I genuinely speak nothing but high regards. If I see people and I've crossed paths with them, you know as I've gone to uh, other agencies and opportunities, um, they. They just taught me so much. They taught me about the good, bad, and ugly. There were screaming matches, there were shouting matches, the big FUs, and all that. But really, when you kind of come out of that on the other side from a lens of maturity, you got to remember where you came from. And they took a chance on a guy that was a radio producer and brought him into this world and kind of groomed him to be, you know, a formidable presence in the world of sponsorship, like really understanding and seeing things through different lenses. So, you know, Octagon absolutely was, uh, was one of the best jobs of my entire life.
0: Yeah, I've, I mean, I've only heard good things. I know multiple people that work there in just way different capacities. Octagon is absolutely gigantic. So they have their hands in all these different opportunities, whether it's events, whether it's athletes. You know, I spoke with someone who represents talent, uh, media talent over at Octagon. And then I've spoken with someone who negotiates media right deals. Like they just, they have, so many different things they can do which makes it really interesting as you said from your perspective in that type of agency you're going to bounce around to a lot of different places even just within the sponsorship aspect but i have to ask you i mean andrew what the hell is it about you that all these places are willing to give you these incredible opportunities i mean as you said at sirius like oh yeah and then i was just put on the morning drive show like if anyone knows anything about radio there's two shows that everyone wants to be on morning drive and afternoon drive it's just like that's just kind of how radio works and you're immediately put on both of those shows even after showing like yeah you were probably good at your job but you're also kind of an asshole so i don't know why they then wanted to put you on the afternoon drive show i mean then getting the job at octagon and just them just being like oh you know we really really want you to the point where oh charlotte didn't work well we really really want you to go up to connecticut like what is it what is it about you for at least from your perspective that allows people to really like covet you and what do you do to attract people to you to get them to say yes we need you and we need you in the highest possible position as quickly as possible
1: yeah I mean I I appreciate that compliment uh but in a lot of ways it's
0: max man you just laid it all out like it's crazy (laughs) that not crazy because clearly you did a great job but it's just it's interesting to see you know other people listening and watching it's like that's not usually how it works and I I think you know that you're kind of you know um coherent to that. But like, what is it about you that allows this to happen so much?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, as much as it seems like people were reaching out to me and, you know, I was the most catered and clamored commodity in these positions. um, It wouldn't, my name wouldn't have even been in the conversations or on the radar if I wasn't very persistent, um, you know, going back to the Marymount conversation, you know, not taking Mm -hmm. over an answer. Um, putting my name to the front of the list and top of the line in a lot of ways um, but also you got to have good people in your corner like you got to build a team around you that can advocate for you that can um, you know kind of give you the credibility to to what you're doing in your life um, at Sirius XM you know there was a guy uh, he was a newsroom manager at the time named uh, John Easterbrook and they everyone called him Jay Brooks uh, Jay Brooks was, just kind of, I don't know how to put him. You didn't want to say like a, a lifer in radio, mm-hmm. uh, but he, he just absolutely had a pulse on the radio scene and local media scene. And, um, you know, did voiceovers, did his own mm-hmm. acting like, he, but he just was so genuine. And he was one of my first, you know, managers like through my men- mentorship program there. And him and I, and I can't even say it was just me because I think there's past interns who I've worked with that have had similar relationships with Jay. And he took me under his wing and he just it completely went to bat for me in so many different facets while at Sirius XM. When I was at Octagon, I mean, I, you know, getting into Octagon, I had people down in Charlotte advocating for me, just I think from a, a Personal standpoint, mm-hmm. um, and again, that that helps. But if I wasn't really good at my job, or at least very professional from their lens and how they saw it, they wouldn't, you know, advocate for me to take it up the ladder to bringing them myself into their company. To the point where they thought that, hey, this guy may not know it all, but he at least is doing this really, really well. And I'm sure if he can do that really, really well in the amount of time that he's been doing it, I'm sure that mm-hmm. we can bridge the opportunity there. Um, it's not rocket science in a lot of ways. Um, So to me, it was just having a good team. It it really Mm -hmm. was. And I, I try to this day to, I have some incredible mentors, um, people that, you know, may not even think I consider them mentors, like people who continuously probably, you know, put me down more than anything for where I've gone in my career. Um, But I love sometimes hitting them up every six months and just having those conversations as like a bit of humility and truth serum, because you don't want your mentor to always tell you, Andrew, you're doing great. You're on Mm -hmm. the right path. You're this and that. You need somebody that's like, dude, you're out of your damn mind. Like, like when I first started a fellow group, one of my mentors was at Octagon and I scheduled a meeting with her. Um, She represents some of the top talent, you know, at Octagon. She's been there for a very, very long time. Um, And I scheduled a meeting and I ran this idea by her and I went into her office into the city and I explained, I'm like, I have this very unique way of working with professional athletes. It's scalable. It's 360 management. It's, I think it's something like, I've seen small successes with it. What do you think? And I remember she looked at me and she was just like, I, I I admire your drive. I really do. I just think that like there's so much more that you don't even realize goes mm-hmm. into this. And you know, it, it wasn't that she ever put me down and said like you can't do it. I don't think she ever once would would do that. But her and I have always had like even just on like Twitter exchanges and stuff like that. She has always been very blunt with me, and she does that with a lot of people. But she's she's been. Like she'll tell me if she thinks like that was a really dumb tweet, or like you know, like you know, she'll send me a DM and be like, "Take that down." Like, what are you doing? That's awesome. Yeah, but like, I don't think she even realizes it. Maybe she does, um, but she's she's always just been such a, a kind-hearted individual. And you know, when it comes down to emotion and empathy, like she gets it. But I think she genuinely knows that the best way that certain people respond to um, growth in their careers through criticism. Um so for me, you know, to answer your question, it's it's really just having the right team and, and really making sure that you connect and network with the right people and and build off of those opportunities from there.
0: And so with that, uh, you know, you spoke about Othello Group, obviously. That's what you're doing now, founder of that. What what was the re I mean, it sounds like your job at Octagon was pretty sweet, but it does sound like it escalated very quickly. Um, You know, again, I think most people would sign up to hang out on a boat with with Chris Hedworth and MIA for a couple days. But at the same time, it's also it's it sounds a lot cooler than having to take all those plane rides, get all the work done. Oh, then you have to show up and you have to be not just there, but you have to be present and you have to be on all the time. And So was it more of a burnout which led you to a fellow group or was it more of the idea that, hey, and I know there was a couple stops along the way, but hey, I I have this really cool idea and I want to and see what I can do on
1: my own. Yeah, no, I, in short, it was absolutely burnout. Um, I was 27 or 28. I had jumped all around and I was in the Maldives, um, you know, working on a project with Corona and my job, um, albeit, I'm in the most exotic location in the world with some of the biggest celebrities in this super intimate setting. Um, but at home, My girlfriend, now wife at the time, you know, she had just gotten diagnosed with breast cancer and she was 25 years old, um, Mm -hmm. vegetarian, did everything right. And it was, oh, you'll not to cut this off. You like this Jake Miller. Is calling me right now. He must know what's up, coming.
0: Jake. <laughs> Jake's episode just came out the other day. What a cool guy! Exactly. Tell him I say hi. Tell him you were a little busy hanging out with me. Um, <laughs> maybe tell him just to hop on. T- tell him to check out the live stream on LinkedIn. Maybe I he'll will. go there next. We'll see how that goes. But
1: I will. It. I will. Sorry about that. All uh, good. But yeah, so I so my my now wife had breast cancer, and here I was. I was in the middle of the Maldives, and it you know it just didn't seem right. You know, for me, I'm like, I need to be home. Like, I need to be with, you know, my girlfriend. I need to be there for. Um, And at that time, I was like, look, I can't keep traveling all over if I have a sick partner at home going Mm -hmm. through like chemo and radiation and all this. So, to be very honest with you, I was riding high at Octagon. Um, I was working on some of the biggest properties. And had I maybe stuck it out there another two or three years, I'm sure that I would probably have a very senior position at a brand now that my experience would have led me there Mm -hmm. too. Um, but I jumped ship. Um, I was in Russia. I was poached by another agency, uh, called Mosaic that was working with Anheuser-Busch, um, in the U S on a lot of different sampling programs and more experiential events. And it gave me the opportunity to be home more. And my traveling was going to be more limited. It was going to be more regional versus international. So I walked away from this glamorous, crazy lifestyle uh, with Octagon to then working um, with another agency that gave me the opportunity to stay more U.S. And I was I was resented in a lot of ways by my colleagues. Um, but then again, I don't think any of them even to this day, may fully understand why I did it. Um, mm-hmm. In their mind, it might have been for the money, for the opportunity, for that. Um, you know, sure, transparently, the money was a little bit better. But for me, it was about what was going on at home. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so when I did that, you know, like I said, I, I went, you know, burnt out uh, kind of an octagon by doing that. Mosaic, I was there for a year and a half, really burnt out there. Um, and I took a few months off, and that's kind of when Othello group was starting, was towards the end of Mosaic. Um, me and two of my buddies, uh, who I used to work with uh, at Octagon, they both have uh, other jobs now since. We were playing hockey together and afterwards probably six or seven beers deep. And we're like, "What, what can we do? Like, you know, come on. We have this itch, entrepreneurial itch. Like you're a creative, you're a copywriter, like Stallings, you know, like business for the most part, you know, people, you know, companies, you know, athletes, like what can we do? And ultimately I came to find out that, you know, outside of the core four of sports, which is like. NHL, MLB, NBA, NFL, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In North America, at least that there's action sports, UFC, soccer, in a lot of ways, you know, there's, there's the rising sports properties that unless you're Tony Hawk, Ronda Rousey, something like that, you're not going to have top tier management, Mm -hmm. or you're going to be a number on a list of 150 people that your agent does represent. So I ended up looking at this further and I, I surveyed about 30 to 35 professional athletes. And I remember just asking them, you know, like, what are you missing? Like, what are your struggles? What are your challenges? This and that. And all the feedback that I gathered was that a, they don't have a proper resource of management. If they do have any management, it is their uncle, their cousin, mm-hmm. their friend, sister. And it was very, very unprofessional. And they didn't know the industry and it was messy. On top of that, in a world where we live, where content is king right now, and they have all the tools and the ability in the social following to make more content, they didn't have a creative strategist or they didn't have anybody that was like, hey, you know, maybe you should use that hashtag or post it this time, like even just find pivots and tunes Mm -hmm. to help them from a content standpoint. On top of that, they didn't have legal help. They didn't have tax help. They didn't have negotiation specialists, licensing, branding, website, all of those small things usually in a world of an athlete you need 5 to 7 other people to manage. So I'm like, okay, how do I create this model for athletes where I basically give them 360 management and I say, look, I'm going to help you out, you know, I'll handle your day to day, you know, your meetings, your PR, opportunities for content, your deliverables, what have you, and then everything else I will outsource here, you know, within my company and we'll bring it all in house. Mm-hmm. So I've built up just this network of great individuals that I have one of the best sports attorneys in the world that helps me out with all legal contracts. I have um, a music and entertainment tax person that, you know, does stuff with like Tiesto and, you know, Don Imus' estate, all this. And I built up this credible network of people around me. So again, going back to the network of people around you, I've been able to now build out this project-based model where... Yes, I'm the nucleus of it, and I manage over 20 professional athletes now in these categories. But if they're like, "Hey, I need you know uh, a brand new website development," I have a, I have five different graphic designers I can tap into. Or mm-hmm. if they're like, "Hey, I need a new logo," again, same thing. I can go take this vision and build it out. So everything is very project based, and a lot of people kind of frown at that. They're they're kind of taken aback. They're like, "Why don't you hire a team?" This and that and i always say i'm like why get in the weeds what why try and oversell myself where if i have an rfp with a major brand that's like hey we want to do this huge production shoot and this campaign with like seven of your athletes or you know what have you make it happen cool mm-hmm. i have i have literally three production companies you know based in different parts of the us that i can use i have fabrication companies i have it all in the network so to me it's it's all dependent on the scalability factor and the pricing, like some people's budgets are not $10 million, they're $10,000. Mm-hmm. So you have to be able to be very self-aware and who you're going to use based on the quality and efforts of that. So that from the athlete's side was the one thing. And then, you know, the other side of it is that I work with brands to help them figure out how to use professional athletes, you know, athlete mm-hmm. recruitment models. Um, if they come to me and they're like, hey, we want an ultra marathon runner for this new contact lens company and brand that we're rolling out. I'm like, cool, I have seven in my network. Let me go tap into them, see what it looks like. So we work with brands to kind of project manage and build campaigns out. Um, So it's very similar to Octagon. It's almost like a two-story lane approach of brands and athletes. Um, But as this was all building up with a fellow group like almost two years ago and I was leaving Mosaic to go to Constellation um, I was burnt out of Mosaic, Constellation. I had gotten laid out. I got laid off um, from my honeymoon on the tarmac uh, when I landed. And I just told myself, I was like, okay, I'm going to give myself six months to try a fellow Group. I'm going to buy out my business partners. I'm going to go all in. Let me see if I can make this profitable, make this number in my head. And if I can do it, great. And it was such a grueling six months. And it didn't happen until. In typical fashion, month five and a half, Mm -hmm. where everything just started clicking, like it was, it was perfect. So you know, my two business partners, I still play hockey with them. Uh, Great guys, Um, no love lost there. Got out for all of us at the right opportunity. Um, And as we stand right now, I mean, like I said, we were going back to sports. NASCAR is coming back this week. We have a brand new NASCAR sponsorship we're working on with one of my athletes, Um, and then we have UFC that came back this past weekend. So you know, a lot of people, they call me and they're like, oh, are you just sitting there on your thumbs, like not doing anything? I'm like, so far from it. So far from it.
0: That's awesome, man. Congratulations on all of it. And I think, again, it's it's really interesting how you've been able to draw upon, and most people are able to doing this, right? You're, you're able to draw upon your relationships, your network, your the people that you've met along the way, but also just the experiences that you've had, you know, having a couple stops in these different agency businesses and really being able to learn who people are and how that entire world works and now you're like well i can kind of play both sides of this as well obviously as your time at octagon you were able to spend a significant amount of time with the brands at your time at sirius you were able to find a lot of athletes obviously in the nascar space which as you just put you have a couple athletes there as well so and understanding that entire business model and what they're doing and you're able to kind of grab this and gravitate it and be able to say okay well now we have two lanes you know we can help brands do whatever they need with athletes we can help athletes do whatever they need with brands and i'm sure there's a couple sweet spots where those two roads are able to connect and there's an on and off ramp somewhere that you're able to connect the athletes that you do manage with the brands that you manage and i guess only a couple more minutes because i know you got to get going and so do i soon but with getting into your own thing and and Now starting this athlete management side, how easy was it? I know you had a connection with a lot of athletes, but how easy was it to really, you know, you formulate this idea, you see how it can work, but how was it actually implementing it and saying like, okay, like I'm going to manage these athletes now through this network that I've developed these athletes, they don't get the best service. So, you know, like how that's, again, that's kind of a new career path. Well, obviously it's connected. How are you able to take advantage of that side of it as well? Never again doing really, never really doing this too much beforehand.
1: Yeah. So the one thing I always tell people when they ask me what the most difficult part of my business is is um, it's definitely not recruiting athletes or convincing them that this model works. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been doing this for j- just about two years now, and like I said, we've worked with probably. 55 athletes on projects, um, in the past two years, um, 20 of which right now are on retainer, um, in what we do. And it's, it's not a model where any one of them can walk away and say, that was not right. That was a professional. Mm -hmm. I didn't get what I want out of it. So it's to the point where I I get the inbound for athletes is there now, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I get, you know, a lot of niche players. I get even NFL players that sometimes reach out to me. Um, and it's so, so flattering. Like I'll always have the conversation. Um, but it's not hard to, to kind of convince an athlete that it works because I think with the right people and the right, um, mentality, like their trust, like they're vulnerable, like athletes just want somebody that can really help them take their brand to the next level. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's, if you're able to show them results, show them campaigns and names of other athletes where it's worked, um, it's not difficult. I think the the hard thing uh, that I kind of find myself you know, doing day in and day out is finding the simplicity in the approach to the brands. Um, I personally, and if, if you know me, this should come as no surprise, I hate data. I, I hate big blown out creative decks that we spent hundreds and thousands of dollars to build out. Because um, I've done all that. I've been the guy that had to go get the data and done all of it. And to me, I've seen. I've sat on the brand side too, and they don't care. They want somebody who's confident and can be efficient and can be affordable. Because if you can do all of that and eliminate the risk, that's all they care about. Mm-hmm. And you know, for me, it's it's really again, it's relationship building, showing just enough. And finding somebody that trusts you enough to build the ideas out with you. Again, I don't like to pitch. I don't like to email people and say, "Hey, here's my pitch. Here's this." I want to introduce myself and I want to show people what I do, what our team is all about. But I really want collaboration as mm-hmm. much as you know. We could make a whole podcast about marketing buzzwords. I, I am all about collaboration and partnership. I, I, you know, I love building out ideas. I love picking and you know poking holes in certain things. So for me, you know, that's the biggest struggle is that these bigger brands, these big companies, they have a process. And usually you have to find your way into the right person, which you never know because it's always changing. Um, you have to do like an entry, you know, discussion with this person, this person. I'm like, come on, guys. Like, what do you need? What are you working on? Like, Mm -hmm. if if I have the solution, great. If not, maybe I have someone in my network that I can help get for you at a scalable price. Like, no love lost. It's fine. And, you know, once you kind of get that trust in there, you're fine. Mm -hmm. It's just, we live in such a world now where trust is volatile and not really relevant in a lot of ways uh, um, that you, it's, it's tough to come by. So for me, it's it's building the trust with the brands to get through that first hurdle and step. And once we do, um, we're able to, you know, kind of build and grow from there. And, and that goes with the athletes, that goes with the brands, that goes with vendors. It's trust. And, and I think building that human nature of what we do is is key. We have other agencies that, you know, are somewhat competitive, like competitive mm-hmm. with us. You know, they, they're like, we have databases of professional athletes and we measure all these numbers. And the way that we've been able to come out on top sometimes when we hear that they're also in the conversation is that they're trying to lean too hard on data and they're completely eliminating the human effort to what we do. They're eliminating project managers for software and data platforms. They are eliminating the creativity element in hopes that a brand will just happen to their secondary Mm -hmm. creative option. And to me, if you have a human, if you have me on the phone with you, talking, giving you this stuff, you can figure stuff out through conversation, through ups and downs, through raw emotion, through trial and error. And so many people take that for advantage in marketing and in business today. Like trial and error is a necessity uh, evil to grow. Like you have to do it. And you can't put data, you can't put robots, you can't put a creative deck that's all going to be able to fix that. You need to have raw interpersonal communications that helps you get to that next level.
0: And I think it helps that you've, been on their side, right? You've been on the brand side. You understand what they're doing. And, you know, I appreciate the point you make about the athletes. A lot of these athletes are just looking for someone to help. And if you can show them that you help them, you gain their trust very quickly and it allows them to say, okay, yeah, let's go, Andrew, what else do you got for me? So I think, you know, again, just being on that brand side and understanding what it was like, you know, representing them and getting them all these ideas, you understand that they're it's it's mitigating risk. Like that's one of the biggest things that they're worried about is okay is this person going to make us look stupid? No. Okay, cool. Then we can do what we need to do with them because they already kind of have an idea, right? Like you can, you can pitch them the most grandiose idea. They kind of know what they want to do. Once you start talking about a specific athlete, they look them up, they see what their socials are. They see what kind of person they are. And they think, okay, this is kind of what we can do with them, which I think is, you know, for better or for worse. But as you said, it's also then the collaboration and, but you know, the athlete a little bit more. So it's, well, actually no, no, they they would prefer it if we did it this way or that way and it just helps and and having those real life conversations and not just saying you know the data and the metrics say x y and z you know, you can get the data too, but it seems like, again, the most important part is the human aspect, which I think is, I mean, it's a service business, right? It's absolutely a service business. They're capable of finding all this stuff just as much as you are. So it's not like they need, you know, every number and metric, they know the numbers they want, they'll find them, they'll get them in some way, shape or form, but it allows the opportunity to be created and the conversation to be created around the creative, which I think is the most important part. And man i think you're doing awesome stuff i think we connected about a year ago i've been checking out what you've been doing recognizing what you've been doing following you along you know obviously we've connected a few times which have been great but and this was this was awesome andrew i really appreciate your time today
1: yeah i appreciate it michael it's uh Gives me an opportunity to kind of open up a little bit more. Yeah. Um, which I think we all kind of need that therapy session every once in a while. Um, but Thank I mean dude, c- kudos to you, man. I mean, this is hey. this is fun for it's fun for me to watch you. I mean, these conversations you. that you're having and the way that you're kind of evolving your own personal projects and brand, it's it's awesome. So what you're doing with uh with the show is pretty fun, man.
0: I appreciate that. And there is one last thing, obviously, and I told you about this. And if you have a couple more minutes, you are the head coach of women's ice hockey at the Stanford public schools. You've been talking about (laughs) hockey this whole time, which I think is great. You know, it's just as, as we said, you know, all the way, you know, a little over an hour ago, that was the, that's what really got you going in this area. And I think it's awesome. You know, I always say thank you to coaches. I always say thank you to teachers, because they don't get paid enough. And they literally shape our youth. So everyone out there, who is now at home, stuck with their kids, stuck? I maybe, maybe not the best word, but I'm finding all of them are saying, "Yeah, I really wouldn't mind if my teachers got paid a couple more bucks." But I mean, what what drove you to want to be a coach? I know you brought it up before; you were a, a basketball coach as well, I think women's basketball coach as well. So, mm-hmm. what what is it about coaching and what has driven you to want to continue to give back to the youth, um, especially being you know a high school ice hockey coach up there in Connecticut?
1: Yeah, so it, it's it's funny. I had I coached. Probably since high school. Um, I okay. coached like my nephews' youth soccer team. Um, I coached throughout college, uh, women's high school basketball, uh, which was kind of just a joke for me. I, I wasn't, I played basketball in high school. Uh-huh. I was the captain of the Peninsula Catholic Knights varsity basketball team, averaging about 18 seconds a game. Um, How did we
0: it, not talk about that earlier? What's going on, man? <laughs> Hold it. You're burying the lead on me. Geez. <laughs>
1: no it, it was it was just gnarly times back then um you know i I certainly was not the the best athlete I was quick I was conditioned um, but not the most skilled athlete. Um, so when it came to, to moving up to Connecticut, the, the big selling point to me was hockey was everywhere. Like I think where I live even right now in Trumbull, Connecticut, um, there are four or five rinks within a 10 mile radius uh, of where I live currently. And you, you just can't get that. And Mm. to me, it's, it's scratching the itch that I've had my whole life. So I moved up here. Um, let's see, June, 2014, I think. And. I started playing on a men's hockey team in Norwalk, mm-hmm. Connecticut. Um, and one of the guys on my team one night, I think literally I had met him twice. He, and he was the current head coach of the Stanford, West Hill, and Staples women's co-op ice hockey team. So that's three mm-hmm. schools into one because they just couldn't get enough girls from one mm-hmm. school to come on. Um, and he was the current head coach. And he was like, hey – I could use an assistant coach to jump on and like help out with film and all this other stuff. Like, you know, can you, can you do it? And like, or would you want to? And I was like, yeah. Oh, heck yeah. I'm in. And I didn't even ask about pay or anything. Mm -hmm. I just, the opportunity to coach ice hockey was, was awesome. So I show up the first practice with a GoPro camera on a selfie stick. And because he's, he's like, yeah, we need help with film. And I kind of had, like, oversold myself that, like, I have DSLR cameras and all this other stuff. I had a GoPro on a mounting stick. And these poor girls, they see me hop on the ice. And they look at this doofus with a notebook in one hand and a GoPro as they're doing just their back corner edge cuts. And I'm, like, following them around with the camera. They're, like, who the heck is this guy? And luckily, like, that was kind of my my initiation in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, they, they kind of told me like a week later, like, dude, don't worry about the film. Just, just coach. And I was like, mm-hmm. all right, cool. Um, but yeah, yeah, I've been with this program. Um, I think about six years now and it has been every single year. I kind of tell myself, I'm like, oh, that this is going to be the last year. It's going to be the last year. It's it's too much time, too much mm-hmm. effort. And then I'd say that like right at the middle point of every season, just because I get tired and burnt mm-hmm. out. and we, The players do the coaches too. We're run the ice six or seven days of the week. And then on the back end, I, it's just like before you know it, it's off season, and you're like, okay, here we go. We get a plan for more ice time, and this, mm-hmm. and booster club, and I just, I, I love it. I mean, to me, it's yeah, it's a give back method, but it's also therapy. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we work such crazy schedules mm-hmm. in this world with marketing and everything else that if I can get, like, it gives me an excuse. Like, because I personally, my wife yells at me all the time. She's like do you want to go do a workout like in the garage and and do all this for like 45 minutes, 30, even like an hour. And I'm just, I don't like structured workouts. Mm -hmm. I don't like doing it. I I don't like gym memberships. I, I, I like playing hockey. I like running and that's my thing. So, when it comes to getting on the ice, it's a no excuse reason for me to get on the ice for an hour to Mm -hmm. an hour and a half every day. So in the winter, I'm usually it's reverse effect. It's like my dad bod comes in the summer. And then in the winter, I'm actually in my best shape because I'm always on the ice. I'm always doing stuff, but those girls are incredible. The program's been incredible. Um, And yeah, I mean, we're, we're weathering the storm right now, obviously Mm -hmm. with everything with the pandemic and how, you know, high school and, you know, collegiate sports as well are, are going to be affected. So it's um, it's tough, you know, and you feel for a lot of the girls that leave your program and they're graduating this year and, you know, they're just they're not able to have a graduation. They're not going to have a prom like stuff like that just sucks. So, you know, it's it really opens your eyes in a lot of ways. So yeah. to me, I try to diversify everything that I do. And, um, yeah, it's it's fun, man. It, it, those girls, they're they're top notch at what they do on the ice, but really great mature young women off the ice.
0: I love it, man. It is awesome, and we do appreciate you giving back and and having this opportunity, and just accepting it. Maybe, as you said, I think your words were doofus. I mean, hey, we all have to have one of those in some shape <laughs> or form, and uh, you know, hey, as long as it helps out. But sincerely, Andrew Stalling, founder of Oth- Othello Group, I almost screwed it up. I did this whole thing, <laughs> did the whole thing. Andrew Stalling, founder of Othello Group, sincerely, sincerely appreciate your time today, man.
1: Mike, you're the man. Thanks again for everything, brother.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Andrew. As I said, he was very open and honest, which I sincerely appreciate. He was not holding back and he was doing everything that he needed to do to let people know what he's done and and how he's crushing it now. So please make sure to follow him and Othello Group on all of their socials. Everything will be in the show notes. Please also make sure to give us a five-star review wherever the heck you're listening, preferably iTunes, Apple, or even Spotify now, as we all know. But thank you all so much for your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of. I appreciate you giving me some of yours and I hope you make it a wonderful day. Yes!